This morning, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Holy Scripture to Philippians chapter number two this morning. Philippians chapter two, as was just read a moment ago. Our text this morning addresses the matter of unity, unity among the believers in the church, but be careful not to confuse the ideas of unity with union and uniformity. Imagine with me two cats tied together by their tails and thrown over a clothesline in the backyard. Those cats would have union, they are tied together by the tail, but they would not have unity, you understand. Unity is not the same as union. Unity is not the same as uniformity. Imagine with me two prisoners who are dressed alike in orange jumpsuits. They may have uniformity, but they do not have unity. They look alike, they're dressed alike, but they are not necessarily living in unity. Unity is that, that functional virtue whereby in spite of differences, people can humbly live in deference and preference toward one another because of humility and because of selflessness toward one another. That is, to achieve unity, We must have the mindset that it's not about me, but it's about the other. And that has great relevance to us in our relationships, whether in the home or or the church among one another. And as always, our example is our Lord Jesus Christ. The master's plan for spiritual unity is modeled after the master himself. So that from Philippians 2 verses 1 through 8, I've prepared a message titled, The Master's Plan for spiritual unity. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll unpack the text together. Let's pray. God in heaven, we come now to the Holy Scripture and it's our intent to read it, to study it, to understand it. Lord, it's our intent that the Holy Spirit of God teaches us and changes us because of it. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen my voice this morning. Lord, is as I'm struggling with that, I pray, Lord, that you would give me clarity of mind. I pray, Lord, for the hearer, that they would listen and, and hear with spiritual hearing. Lord, I pray that we might be different because of our study this morning and that you would grant unity among us as a church. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 1, therefore... If there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, stop right there. You'll notice Paul's use, his fourfold use of the word if in verse number one. These are called first class conditional clauses for the if statement there, the protasis, is a circumstance that's assumed to be true for the sake of the discussion. Quite literally, this could read since or because, making an appeal to our personal experience. The the Pastor Matt paraphrase of verse number one would read like this. Since you have experienced a number of spiritual Christian blessings, important and delightful blessings, because this has been your experience, since this has been your experience, you should be motivated to extend that same experience to one another. Since verse number one is true, look at verse number two, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, by having the same love, 
by being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. I would offer you, number one, embrace the right motivations for spiritual unity. Embrace the right motivations for spiritual unity. And there are four motivations in verse number one, four realities that ought to motivate us towards spiritual unity. The first is encouragement in Christ. You see it there in the text, verse number one, therefore if, or since, or because, there is encouragement, consolation in Christ, or encouragement in Christ. That English word consolation in my New King James Version is the Greek word paraklesis. It could also be translated encouragement, as perhaps it is in your copy of the English Scripture, the New American Standard, or, or maybe the ESV. It means to come alongside another and give assistance to another. For example, I think of the one in Acts chapter 4 who sold his land and brought the money to the apostles to meet the needs of the church. His name was Barnabas. Meaning, consolation or encouragement, son of consolation or encouragement, it's the word paraclesis. I think of the one whom Jesus promised to send, to come alongside us and encourage us. In John 14, Jesus said, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper. It's the word paraclesis, that he may abide with you forever, that is the spirit of truth. And so the idea then is illustrated by the familiar poem. You know it well. Perhaps you even have a copy of it hanging in your home. The, the, the poem of Footprints in the Sand. One night a man had a dream. He dreamed that he was walking along the beach with the Lord. Across the sky flashed scenes from his life. For each scene he noticed two sets of footprints in the sand. One belonging to him and the other to the Lord. When the last scene of his life flashed before him, he looked back at the footprints in the sand. He noticed that many times along the path of his life, there was only one set of footprints. He also noticed that it happened at the very lowest and saddest times of his life. Of course, that really bothered him, and he questioned the Lord about it. Lord, you said that once I decided to follow you, you would walk with me all the way. But I have noticed that during the most troublesome times of my life, there is only one set of footprints in the sand. I don't understand why, when I needed you most, you would leave me. The Lord replied, my son, my precious child, I love you and I would never leave you. During your times of trial and suffering, when you see only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. And perhaps that's been your experience. Perhaps there's been a time in your life where you have known the everlasting arms of God upholding you and sustaining you. Can you remember a time when you have enjoyed the consolation of Christ or the encouragement of Christ in your Christian life? If that has been your experience at some point or another, then the Apostle Paul is saying in verse number one, that should motivate you towards spiritual unity. But it's not only that consolation or that encouragement in, in Christ, it's also, secondly, comfort of love. Comfort of love, and you see that also in the text, verse number one. Therefore, since there is consolation in Christ, since there is comfort of love. Now, comfort literally means to speak closely with someone for the purpose of giving solace. 
on occasion when my children were young, uh, they needed some comfort of love. I remember occasions when they would fall off their bike, perhaps skin their knee in the driveway. Other times at night, they would wake with a bad dream. And it was then that I drew them to myself. I held them tightly. I whispered closely in their ear, it's okay. Daddy is here. I love you. The comfort of Love. In Jeremiah 31, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. That love has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us so that we might know the comfort of love in our Christian life. Charles Spurgeon has written this. I've copied it for you there on the back of your notes. Do you know, how, O oh saint, how much the Lord loves you? Can you measure his love? Do you know how great is the affection of his soul towards you? Go measure heaven with the span. Go weigh the mountains in the scales. Go take the ocean's water and tell each drop. Go count the sand upon the sea's wide shore. Those are ideas from Isaiah 40, verse number 12. And when you have accomplished this, which you can't, you will then be able to tell how much he loves you. And folks, if it's been your experience this morning that comfort of love where Christ has drawn you close and, and expressed his love to you, that should motivate you towards spiritual unity. There's a third in the text. That's the fellowship of the Spirit. Fellowship of the Spirit. Therefore, if or since or because there is consolation in Christ, encouragement in Christ, comfort of love, fellowship of the spirits. And we've established over the last few weeks that the word fellowship means to have in common with or to partner with. Here in chapter 2 verse 1, Paul assumes that his readers have relationship or partnership with the Holy Spirit of God. Let me give you a quick a quick pneumatology that is a doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do for you? What fellowship or partnership do you have with the Spirit of God? The Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, if we are a born-again believer. The Holy Spirit is the seal and the security of our salvation, Ephesians 1. The Holy Spirit is the source of spiritual power, Acts 1 verse 8. And of spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12. And of spiritual fruit, Galatians 5. The Holy Spirit is the one who helps us in our weakness. And because we do not know how we ought to pray as we ought, the Holy Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings that are too deep for words, Romans chapter 8. We are to be continually filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5. Not to grieve the Spirit, Ephesians 4. Not to quench his work in our lives, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 19. And there ought to be a communion with, a partnership with, a fellowship with the Spirit of God working in your life. And if that is your experience then it should motivate you towards spiritual unity, fellowship of the Spirit. There's another, a fourth, in verse number one, and that is affection and mercy. You see it there at the end of verse number one. The word affection refers to, to one's bowels or the, the viscera and was used to describe the seat of one's emotions. And in Paul's introduction here, if you look just back across the page to chapter 1 verse 8, Paul wrote that he longed for the Philippians with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's the, the same term there. 
mercy. Affection and mercy could be translated as compassion, as it is if you're carrying the New American Standard. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. And of course, many times Jesus had compassion on the multitudes. Study the life of Jesus as given to us in the Gospels. And Jesus healed them and he forgave them and he cared for them. And if that has been your experience this morning, if you have experienced the affections and the mercies of God in your life, then it should motivate you towards spiritual unity. So Philippians 2 verse number 1 is an appeal to our experience. If or since these four realities have been part of your Christian experience, Then D.A. Carson says this, I've copied it for you there on the back of your notes as well. He says, you must recognize that much of this, much of what we've just identified in verse number one, has come about because other Christians have mediated God's grace to you. See, how do we experience these things? from verse number one. It's through other believers, through other Christians. They have loved you, cherished you, encouraged you, made you feel part of the partnership of the redeemed. What this means for you as a Christian then is that you owe the same to others. Folks, no one is in greater debt to other believers than me. I have been blessed over the course of my entire lifetime, beginning with a a Christian mom and dad, a Christian home, with pastors and teachers and coaches and godly men and women, many of whom are in this room this morning, professors, colleagues. You have ministered these things to me. You have been God's instrument of these things in my life. As I embrace those things, it motivates me towards spiritual unity. In fact, if I were to, to change, perhaps, uh, as you prepare a message and you, and you create an outline, I'm, I'm always editing and, and hopefully improving. I, I would change number one. Let's, let's do some editing on the fly here. From embrace the right motivations for spiritual unity, change that to exercise the right motivations for spiritual unity. So that I am exercising... I I am not out of guilt or obligation or out of duty, but I'm exercising these motivations toward spiritual unity. And in these things, Paul said his joy would be complete if the church would exercise the right motivations toward spiritual unity. Look at verse number two. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Number one, embrace or exercise the right motivations for spiritual unity. Number two, understand, understand the best means for spiritual unity. And whether it is the Apostle Paul or this pastor, there is a fulfilling joy in knowing that a local church is like-minded and united. But how does that happen? How do we get there? What's the best means for spiritual unity here in this place? First, letter A, we must have a single mind, a single mind. Now, in our cynicism, we might envision walking into a church service on a Sunday morning and placing a microchip behind our ear, automatically synchronizing all of our thinking uh, with one another. 
A techno geek with a remote computer in the office would then program our minds so that we would all think alike. We would be religious robots, involuntary clones of our leader, and it would be great science fiction, wouldn't it? Or how does this become a spiritual reality? How do we have a single mind? Paul wrote to the Corinthians, I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, that there are quarrels among you. He says this, I exhort you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11. That, that sounds a little bit idealistic, doesn't it? Practically, it's impossible for us to all think the same thing. With 600, and, 600 people in our church family, 600 members in our church, um, there are probably 599 different opinions on any given subject. And I say 599 because I, I would hope that my wife would agree with me, right? In my, in my <laughs> um, little uh, newsflash here, my wife doesn't always think the same way as I do. And it's a problem, right? No. How do we achieve this like-mindedness or this single mind? Married couples don't even think alike. How is it that 600 people in a church family could think alike? And I propose that we can only be like-minded of one mind, verse number two, if we are Christ-like-minded. We don't try to think like each other, but we adopt the mind of Christ. Look ahead to verse number five. Let this mind be in you. What mind is that? which was also in Christ Jesus. So if your mind is set on Christ, you have the right mindsets. And only when we are Christ-like-minded can we be like-minded with one another. Okay, you say, but pastor, still, practically, how functionally, how does this work, right? I understand there was a church back east who was preparing to re-roof their church auditorium. However, they could not come to agreement on the color of the shingles to be used. Some wanted black, some wanted gray shingles. I've told you this story before. In frustration, the pastor called the contractor and, and instructed him to roof half of the auditorium with one color shingle and the other half with the other color shingle. Right? Probably not the best decision for a pastor to make. Probably not the best decision for a contractor to, to make either, but it gets worse. When the people arrived for the next service, those who wanted the black shingles sat on the side of the church underneath the black shingles, and those who wanted the gray sat underneath the gray shingles. Are you kidding me? Never mind the color of the carpet, right? The, the proverbial division point or church split. But the, the shingles on your roof... And at some point, the issue is no longer a matter of the color of the shingles. It's everyone's deference toward one another. There's no unity there in that place. Now, in no way is Paul suggesting that we compromise our convictions. Don't misunderstand this. He, he speaks equally to that in many other places in the scripture. But for all of church history, Satan has had a heyday in fracturing local churches over personal conflict. And that was a problem also 
in the Philippian church. In fact, turn the page with me to chapter 4, verse number 2. Philippians 2, I'm sorry, 4, verse number 2, where Paul implored Eodia and Syntyche. He, he named names, by the way. He implored Eodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Oh, that God would give us the humility and the grace and the deference to have a single mind. The humility to then let her be, have a selfless mind. See, we can't achieve singleness of mind or unity without selflessness. Verses 3 and 4 again, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, there's the key. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Um, on occasion, I have found myself to be too polite. Is that possible? Is it possible to be too polite? I'm a, I'm a polite man. Uh, sometimes too polite. Um, Let's imagine that we were at the intersection of a four-way stop. And your car and my car come to the intersection at approximately the same time. We're unsure of who has the right of way. Being the courteous man that I am, I motion to you to go ahead, I'll wait for you. However, being the courteous person that you are, you do the same, you motion for me to go first. Have, have you been there? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and so um, I don't have time to waste sitting at a four-way stop. So I am prompted now. So I go ahead and go. I press the accelerator uh, to go. At the very moment that you do the same after you have motioned for me to go, right? And so I start, you start, I stop, you stop. And, and we do the little, the dance right there in the, at the four-way stop. You've been there, Right? It takes a few starts and stops before we get it figured out. But you know, folks, that, that picture, that principle can be illustrated in a thousand microcosms of life. A selfless mind considers the other's comfort, the other's preference. A selfless mind is sensitive to others' feelings. A selfless mind doesn't ramrod his agenda or lobby or campaign for his or her cause. A selfless mind says, you go first, I'll wait. I'll wait even a painfully long time until finally you go and then I'll go. Okay, so now once again in our cynicism, we, we object that this is the perfect formula for becoming a doormat. And let everyone else walk over us. And, uh, and be taken take advantage of us if we don't protect our own interests. I was there first. I have the right of way. I sh if he's not going to play by the rules, that's his problem, right? And, and, and this is the way we think. However, um, when you are convinced that you've been wronged, maybe you're right, but Jesus Christ was wronged. And yet, even though he was right, what did he do? The, the means for spiritual unity is not to dismiss doctrine or truth, but to seek the mind of Christ. What did, what did Christ do? The humility and the selflessness of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Okay, tell us about the mind of Christ. Verse 6, who being in the form of God, that is God the very God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He was equal with God. John chapter 1. But he made himself of no reputation. He took the form of a bondservant and came in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Number three, recognize the master's model for spiritual unity. These verses explain to us the condescension of Jesus Christ to to redeem mankind. We call this the kenosis passage. It's the emptying of of Jesus Christ. And this this, this text is a Christological gem. It's a theological diamond that sparkles brighter than any other scripture. And consequently, we most often come to this text to explain and expound on the miracle of miracles that is how God became a man without ceasing to be God. Throughout the centuries, church leaders and and church councils have debated the the divine and the the human natures of Jesus and have wrestled with this text. Jesus was at the same time fully God and fully man. It's a logical impossibility, but it's a theological reality. Yet, as profound as this text is theologically or Christologically, it's also very powerful practically because Paul presents the condescension of Jesus Christ as a model for spiritual unity for us. I would give you these as subpoints. First, Jesus Christ served. Both Matthew and Mark describe Jesus' life as that of service. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give a his life a ransom for many. It's John's gospel that records the ultimate illustration of this when in the upper room the disciples had apparently refused to serve one another. So Jesus arose from the table. He laid aside his outer garment. He took up a towel and a basin of water and he washed his disciples' feet, John 13. Jesus took the place of a menial servant's What was he thinking? What was going through his mind that would cause him to do such a thing? The mind of Christ was that of a servant. When I graduated from Bible college, my classmates and I received a gift from the college. It was a tradition each year that the graduates would receive this gift. It was a strange gift to be sure, a a gift that, that cost the school very little but a gift that was a powerful reminder to us of this truth. And that gift was a towel, a small hand towel, a servant's towel. And there on that hand towel it said, be great, serve. Jesus Christ as our model, he came to to serve. And that's honorable and that's noble, but he didn't just serve. Secondly, Jesus Christ sacrificed. Many people are willing to serve if it doesn't cost too much, a little time, a little money, 
I'll help out here and there. But the master's model included the, the humility and the obedience to the point of, of personal sacrifice. In humility, he lowered himself not only relative to God, but also relevant relative to other men. In his obedience, he obeyed not just what was convenient, but what was, what was sacrificial to the point of death. Again, on the back of your notes, Ralph Martin writes this. He says his obedience is a sure token of his deity and his authority for only a divine being can accept death as obedience. For ordinary men, death is a necessity to be avoided at all costs. He alone, as the obedient son of his father, could choose death as his destiny. And let me remind you of the nature of that death. The text says it was the death of a cross. Crucifixion is perhaps the, the most cruel, excruciating, painful, shameful form of execution ever conceived. It was originally devised by the ancient Persians or Phoenicians. It was later perfected by the Romans. It was reserved for servants and slaves. No Roman citizen could be crucified, no matter his crime. One author has described it this way, listen, he says, a death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of the horrible and ghastly. Dizziness, cramp, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, shame, publicity of shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, mort mortification of infected wounds, all these intensified just up to the point at which they could be endured at all, but all stopping just short of the point which would give to the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. The unnatural position made every movement painful. The lacerated veins, crushed tendons, throbbed with incessant anguish. Jesus sacrificed himself in these ways. But praise the Lord that he did for he himself bore our sin in his own body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness for as by those stripes we are healed. Jesus served, he sacrificed in this way. And I would say this to us this morning, church, as a fellowship assembly of believers, if we have experienced the forgiveness of sin because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, if that has been your experience, or since that has been your experience, because that has been your experience, then God is calling you to have the mind of Christ and to be in unity with your brothers and sisters. Perhaps that's not your testimony. Perhaps you've never called on the name of the Lord in faith, believing that Jesus shed blood and death on the cross was payment for your sin. You've never believed that God raised Jesus from the grave, his resurrection, so that you might have eternal life. Then this morning, the invitation is for you to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. But I know I speak to the majority of professing believers. Since this has been our experience, we look to our master who modeled the mindset necessary for unity. He served and he sacrificed and he's calling us to the same. Let me pray. God in heaven, I thank you for Jesus Christ. I thank you for what he accomplished for us on the cross. I thank you for what he modeled for us in his life. 
Lord, I thank you that we can look to him as our, our master, our model, and that we might follow after him in this way. I thank you, Lord, for the Fourth Baptist Church. I thank you for the unity that is demonstrated here on a regular basis. Lord, I thank you for the humility and the, the deference, the, the love that this church shows toward one another. I pray that you would continue to grant us that in the months and the years to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.